0: Hi everybody, it's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations with news about New Orleans that counts, about our economy, our environment, our culture, and some occasional politics. Thank you for joining and enjoy the show. Folks, the exciting thing that just happened with all the doom and gloom out there, so to speak, is that the film industry has resolved its dispute, hopefully favorably to the workforce that makes it all happen, that never gets the credit it should and um we're rocking and rolling again and and this is really important for new orleans because a lot of people don't realize this but new orleans is the fourth this is what i'm told uh, Ollie, maybe you, you will uh, contradict it but is the fourth most um active uh, marketplace for film and video in the country and uh so when we go, when that industry goes down here, it, it, uh, the whole economy takes a hit. Because what a lot of people don't realize when we advance the idea of incentivizing filmmaking here is how many people in so many other trades and businesses benefit. And um, it took us a long time to get the legislature to understand this, and at, at a cost because in the meantime, a lot of companies um, took off for Atlanta, and they built a whole new center of filmmaking in Atlanta, which was not advantageous for us at all. Now, hopefully we have still so much um, uh, activity, uh, cultural, architecture, landscape, the whole thing that makes this an attractive place. And increasingly, from what I understand from Carol Morton and the film office, a lot of crews based here in New Orleans, and that's really important because we Yeah, we
1: have a lot of good crew here.
0: We have uh, with us today um, a longtime filmmaker in a city that, when he first started, uh, was barely able to attract a film to be made here because we didn't have studios, we didn't have crews, uh, and all we had was a rich culture, beautiful architecture, great landscape, but people didn't really understand um, how they could make films here. Since then, a couple studios have opened, a lot of crews have developed, and there's a lot of filmmaking going on here, both by people from elsewhere, but also filmmakers from here. And I think that's the big difference, isn't it, Only from the beginning, is that it was location work by other people. Um, and then we incentivized it and more people came. But then gradually there was enough business to to really provide the basis for uh, people actually living and working here.
1: Exactly. Well, I, you know, the, the the first film I worked on here was... <laughs> of course, to, to go back in the beginning, there was no film tax credit here in the state of Louisiana. It was exactly for the reasons that you had just mentioned. You know, we had beautiful locations, interesting locations, the history of New Orleans. Uh, I think people were coming here for that purpose, specifically. Um, the, the first movie I ever worked on was My Name is Nobody. I'm really dating myself now with Henry Fonda. And then uh, the the second real big movie that I worked on was uh, Pretty Baby, um, oh, wow. and that was obviously, that and that was obviously New Orleans was chosen for the story. It was you know about you know the brothels in Storyville. Um, that you know Brooke Shields was a was a little a young virgin prostitute that was brought into the into that world. So obviously that film was was needed to be shot here because of the story took place in New Orleans. And I was fortunate enough to go down there and get a job on that film. And I was uh, the assistant to the Swedish cameraman Sven Nikvist, and Sven Nikvist was Amar Bergman's cameraman. Um, and he hired me to shoot uh, I was shooting film at the time as a cameraman. so. I got hired to, to, to work with his son who came over from Stockholm and we shot scenes at, uh, you know, on location behind the scenes, shot some of the scenes that they were shooting. And then we did interviews with a lot of the people that were, were working on the film, the production designer, the other producers, Louis Malle, the director. Uh, and then I went over to Stockholm. I was invited to go over there, went over there for that summer and I, uh, hung out with them. And then while they were here, they really, really loved the black radio stations. So WYLD, uh, at the time was pretty much just a local, you know, radio station. Um, and I recorded everything for them off the off of uh, off the radio, I just did four hours straight commercials, music, everything, and and brought it to them when I went to, to, to Sweden. And you know, there's no black culture in Stockholm. Let's just face it;
2: <laughs> certainly
1: not not like New Orleans. So when they heard the heard the tapes, they said, "Oh, Oli, you have to do the you have to do a radio. We got to do a radio opening, a black radio DJ opening for the film." I wow. said, "Okay, that sounds great, man. Uh, who, who's who's going to do it? Well, y- you are." And I said, "Oh, oh, I am." <laughs> so I ended up doing the 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 radio DJ voice, and interestingly enough. We recorded, the, recorded in at Sintomatograph, Sintomato Sintomato which was uh, Amar Bergman's studio. And Whoa. I was recording, recording uh, uh, radio DJ voice in Amar Bergman's private screening room. <laughs> that was a trip. Oh,
0: that is such an experience. Oh my, oh, my gosh, God. the masters chambers oh wow
1: yeah and then you know i that's a great way to get started yeah and and i was with them hanging out they were shooting a film with uh uh who was it at the time it was uh ingrid Tulin and uh, oh god his name uh joseph elon josephson who they were part of the bergman Ensemble. i remember both of them yeah yeah the ensemble cast. Yeah,
0: he, he was always my favorite
1: director so yeah anyway um and that's that's you know and then I started uh, just jump ahead quickly I you know I was playing music in New Orleans so I ended up doing a music video for a band uh called the Red rockers and I did the video called China and that video to this day and I did the I did the video completely on spec nobody paid me any money to do it I just did it so i did the video for the red rockers completely on spec cbs didn't know who i was they had just got signed to cbs records but i just i did it anyway i maxed out my credit card and did the video and and it was uh you know the, the there was no internet so the executive from cbs in new york flew down to look at the at the clip on a flatbed editing machine and at WYS and uh she sat down and she ran the film. She said, oh, I love it. I'm buying it. And that was it. And that started in my wow. career. Wow. I love then, that story. Uh, she, yeah. And then CBS sent me to LA to do a job out there. And a, I had a connection out there through uh, uh, an advertising executive here by the name of Joe Del Papa over at. Uh, at um,
2: Why have I heard that name?
1: Yeah. Fitzgerald Advertising. Oh, it okay. Fitzgerald. And. He he had worked in New York and Chicago and knew some a big production company in L A, and he said call him when you go out there. So I did. They sent a rep to the set when I was shooting another video out there for the Romantics, and uh, they said come see us before you leave. And I hung out and went over to see him over to the company, and they said hey you want to move to L A and I did. So, so I got to Los Angeles.
0: So so Ollie uh, I'm 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 only sorry. That the police strike came too much later than that, I suspect. That I didn't hook up with you earlier because it was the police strike that somehow or another I I, I found you and your your crowd of friends uh, in the <laughs> French Quarter, wound up spending the day with you, and I've known you ever since. And um, yeah. I, it had to happened sooner. I might have done what I originally intended to do when I graduated from college, which was become a film editor. I wanted to be a film editor. And I worked on one little scrappy project that really was, the guy was nuts who was doing it. And I, I got scared off and there were no women <laughs> doing it. We're talking yeah. 66, 65, 66, and there was yeah. nobody very few women in the industry and I and I chickened out and went and did my marketing and PR gig for pretty much the rest of my life, one way or another. Yeah, but well, that you're still good. at well, it. You did very and well Orleans,
2: with
0: that. Uh, you're still at it. New <laughs> Orleans is still at it. And um with the strike uh over and, and uh thankfully to the benefit of, of workers in the industry, I've been really impressed by the resurgence of organized labor i went to the school of Cult of uh, of industrial and labor relations at cornell studying the relationship between management and labor because i oh. was the thing i was interested in so i'm happy to see what's happening on that level but i'm really happy to see film work come back to the city so tell me two things tell me what your latest projects are and where people can uh, access them and tell me how you see things going forward
1: uh, well, it, luckily, the strike, the writer strike and the actor strike are, are both over. Um, and I already hear rumblings out there about a couple projects that are coming here uh, after the first of the year, and that's going to be great. And for, for for people that don't really understand how the tax credits work, uh, look, the, the tax credits are hiring or, or at least giving a lot of local people opportunity to make a living and make a good living. You know, they're in, they've, they've joined unions, they have pensions, they have uh, health insurance. You know, there's a lot. They, and, and, you know, when the productions come here, they rent hotels, they buy food, they buy materials, lumber, lumber yards make a lot of money when they're building sets. They're buying fuel. Um, and they're paying very, very good wages. And I have family members now that have since become members of the union and are, are working on, on television shows and movies. And they both bought ha- houses, they, they buy new cars, they buy trucks, they buy equipment for their business. Uh, one of them is in construction and one of them is a greensman. And they they do very well by, by the movie business. Um, and, you know, frankly, I know it's different here than it is in Europe, but you know, I you go to places like Germany, where I had had worked. I did a movie in Prague for a German television network. And, you know, the German government and European governments, they subsidize the movie industry there. And they make deals with some in some countries and some territories, they make deals with distributors that they'll get a little piece of the distribution if the film is a theatrical release movie in the country, uh, which is great. However, if they don't get anything back at all, the the purpose of it is to keep the citizens of that country or that city or that province, you know, working. And that's what it's all about, you know, rather than having people not working and leaving the state, it's a a win-win, frankly.
2: Well, I
0: think that um, one of the things that happened here that was so unfortunate is that the news media doesn't necessarily work as hard as it should to understand the real workings of anything, the economy, the uh, environment, education. And so uh, when someone comes along and and does a, you know, captures a a moment in, in time where someone is not doing right, which is what happened in your industry, you had one bad player, and then that poisoned the whole uh, scene, but that that station, that reporter, I, I'll call him out. I mean, I respect them, I respect Lee Zurich, but he never told the other side of the story about how important the industry was. And it really yeah. hurt The and, and it, it, it empowered the upstate folks who are always jealous of New Orleans and figured that, well, this business is really benefiting New Orleans and not us. And, and, and they just said, you know, screw us and uh, um, you know, threatened the, the future of the incentive, which is what opened up business in Atlanta. So we have now also workforce, crews uh, based here, and studios. And um, vendors. And what? Vendors. And vendors. Rental,
1: rental equipment companies have moved here, to set up shop uh, for, for camera, lighting, and grip equipment.
0: So with all of that, how do things look going forward? What do we need to do to continue what has been a positive trend, but it's getting more competitive out there? And we don't have the European policies. They support not just the film industry, but all the creative industries. They do so much more to support uh, visual artists, and performing artists and designers and the whole you know, a growth industry that people in Louisiana still don't really understand is a major growth industry worldwide. Um, And we better figure it out faster or else we're gonna get left behind again. But um, tell me about um, how things are working, how the studios are working, the crews, and what do we need to do to really keep the, the motion forward?
1: Well, there's an organization here called LFEA, Louisiana Film and Entertainment Association. Um, Trey Bravant is running that, and he's doing a fabulous job. They have a a lobbyist. And if anybody wants to keep the entertainment industry here we have to have uh, a voice in Baton Rouge, and they are the voice in Baton Rouge for the entertainment industry. Uh, they've done a very good job of, of of working tirelessly to get the tax credit extended. Um, so kudos to those guys. And that's, you know, to answer your question, going forward, the only way it's going to go forward in the state of Louisiana is if we keep the tax credit. I mean, that's the reality. It's it's, it's, so it's, as, it's as the all bottom are- line.
0: Mm-hmm. But as other as other uh, cities um, and regions, states uh, get into the game and and realize uh, as they will because it is such a growth industry, the entertainment industry in general, um, everything that has to do with anything online, film, video, all kinds of media, they're all it's all going to become more competitive. As that happens, and, and as as again as as already happening with Atlanta when when they jumped in the and the moment when uh, we took a pause on our credits here, we didn't really take a pause on them altogether, but just we just the scheduling got awkward. So, um, what? How are we going to compete? I guess that's what I'm asking. How are we going to stay competitive?
1: Well, I think we are. Everybody then, else is
0: offering credits.
1: Well, I think I think in regards to the it's the the, the level of credit that you get here across the board. You get 25. percent If you've got uh, a music component that can be produced here, you get additional uh, credit. If you shoot out of the uh, greater New Orleans area, you get an additional 5%. And I think which was most important is that if you get uh, a, a local writer such as myself that gets a film produced here, you know, that's an additional 10%. So for for instance, oh, so it doesn't
0: just benefit out of town production uh, people. It it also benefits uh, uh, people not not just because they get hired by the out of town firms, but because of being a, a, a locally based company.
1: Did well, I get I that? I mean, right? anybody that spends the money here and goes through the proper you know process, which is you know with the Louisiana Film Commission. It doesn't matter if you're from out of town or in town. You just have to, you know, fill out the application and go through the through the proper channels and go through the process legally. And, uh, you know, you make movies, you get a tax credit. It doesn't this doesn't uh, the tax credit doesn't apply to just from people from out of town. I have a I have a production company here. I'm trying to get another movie up and running uh, uh, next year and a TV series, hopefully uh, after that uh and you know i'm i'm a local guy and i have a company here and as a writer which i do is they get you know whatever the tax credit is it's going to be you know 25% plus 10% because i'm the writer i get the extra 10% for the production so that's a, that's you know what i so i go out to investors and i go out to people in la or new york or europe or wherever and say here's a project that i want to get produced uh incidentally you know you shoot in the state of louisiana because it's a louisiana-based project you're going to get 35 percent tax credit that's huge that is huge i mean you know but even with that it's 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 never a slam dunk you know it's a very very competitive business uh there's a lot of different elements a lot of moving parts you know even if you have a great script you know they always look at my credits you know what have i done what have, and and it's not necessarily what i've done because i have a good resume it's just like they always want to know what you've done lately you know you always have to be current and hot so to speak however i think the 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 best way to get a seat at the table is to create create the content right you know you want to stay in the game you 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 have to figure out how to stay in the game and and i and i think the best way to stay in the game and and, in anybody's position in the business i mean unless they're very well established you know constantly working director which i was you know at the peak of my my directing career when i was doing episodic television for about 10 years wasn't a problem just getting a job go to a job my agent would say hey go to the go see this go see that and you know, everybody I knew, were, were all about the same age at the time, and and you know, it was easier to just get work. And I was, I'd go from one TV show to the next. I worked all over the place. I worked in New Zealand for nearly four years. Vancouver, Toronto, uh, Prague, New York City, Chicago. You know, I'd go wherever the jobs were. That's where I would go. Um, but as you know, as you get older, <laughs> typical in any business. But if you want to stay in the game, you 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 have to. You have to put yourself in the game, and I think, like I said, best seat at the table, write, create, or 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 find somebody who can write something, or hire someone to write something, or just you know, if you if you're wealthy enough, lucky enough, and I know there's some people here that are are in that boat where they can just write a check, and they produce movies, and 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 God bless them for doing it. I don't knock anybody. Just because they're wealthy and, and can just write a check and get themselves in the industry that way, that's just true of any business. And I think it's a they're good thing. They're putting their you know, elbow grease I mean, in. You know, Tommy Thompson, and uh, they've got a really good film company. Um, and those guys are from Homer, Louisiana. You know? And uh, Buddy Patrick. I mean, it's a, there's guys here that uh, come primarily oil and gas, you know? And thank God they've had the interest in 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 doing something creative in the arts and and producing movies and they make good movies
0: well you're 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 opening a description of how you started in the business is such a good um model for um how it happens uh, you did exactly what you're saying right now you should do and that is just get in there and do it it's the just do it
1: you know? <laughs> just do it <laughs>
0: yeah really really does work and um I mean, I I remember so clearly. Even in 1978, when I left television, I was looking at um, movie uh, at uh, music videos, and I really wanted to produce music videos, and I couldn't get money. I couldn't get money to do it, and. Um, I actually got to a certain uh, a certain amount of work done, and then uh, just couldn't pull in more. And so it was it was very hard back then. We didn't have the studios, and we didn't have the crews, and and you just didn't have an understanding in the community that this was important. So I do think that things have definitely changed and gotten better. But um, you know, and and going forward, as I said, I, I I worry about staying competitive as other people offer the credits also. Um, but if we still have the credits and we have the environment that we have and we can be just a, a maybe, you know, more, more people can be more entrepreneurial and, and and less fearful. I think I was a little too fearful. Um, then we can really progress. What would you tell the new governor if you had an audience with him right now? And, and maybe that's a good idea, Oli. You should maybe organize a
1: well, yeah, I'll tell you that like I said the LFEA group that's what doing a good do. job. That's really what they do and yeah. they they are I'm sure have already a, a good plan, you know, to to speak to the new governor. And uh, one can just hope that you know, he's going to be at least a fan of movies and TV shows. But more importantly, see the the benefits for the citizens of Louisiana. Um, you know that this is a very good industry for people to make a good living, and that's before, you know because we, we're talking we're talking about I'm, I'm t- I'm a, yeah there and there's a there's a lot of local actors that get cast now in these so it's so I'm not saying it's. It's exclusive just to the, to the labor force, which is top-notch here. Grip, electric, the teamsters, all the truck drivers, the makeup artists, the hairstylists, the costume people. I mean, they, they are real professional people here that have learned their craft and do a damn fine job when, when shows come here to Louisiana. They can count on getting an A an A plus A-list crew. And these people have worked really hard and studied their craft and learned their craft to, to, to be able to work in the industry. And I think that's the one thing that I th- I'm hoping that the governor will recognize is it's it's not just oh Hollywood. No, it's not Hollywood. It's it's really about people who are working who have to make a living and pay rent and take care of their kids and buy groceries, just like everybody else. Um, and I hope that he sees it for, for, for at least from that perspective, that it is very good uh, for the residents of Louisiana.
0: Before I let you go, um, uh, let's do a little push for uh, one of your recent productions, um, Doomed. Why don't you tell folks about that and how they can uh, view it?
1: Oh, well, it's uh, doomed. (laughs) Oh, boy. This is a a real Hollywood Babylon story. Um, I made a movie called The Fantastic Four, the original Fantastic Four, when we had, you know, this is before the big Marvel Universe explosion. Um, And I was hired to make this film uh for roger corman who was like king of the b movies he gave you know opportunities to to so many big directors martin scorsese uh ron howard francis ford coppola james cameron they all started making wow. movies for roger corman wow. and so i made i was i had already made two movies for roger when he called me to say hey look at this uh This movie, The Fantastic Four. Would you be interested in directing it? And I said, Hell yeah, because I was a big Marvel fan when I was a kid, uh, more so than DC. I I I liked the Marvel characters because they were real people that turned into superheroes uh, from different, you know, extraordinary events, things that happened to them. Like Spider-Man got bit by a spider, you know. The Fantastic Four got hit with gamma rays when they were in space. Um, So they were ordinary people with extraordinary power and which means they were at the core of every one of those characters. They were still human beings. You know, they were like us. They were like me. They were like you, you know. So I was a big fan of that. So I I was very pleased and happy to get a shot at doing a film about the Fantastic Four. Um, And everything was going well. We thought, okay, well, yeah, we don't have any money. (laughs) We got to shoot this thing in a month. Um, but, you know, we're young and full of piss and vinegar and excuse it for saying it, but that, you know, but that's the way it was back then. We just jumped on it and put our heart and soul into it. And then they, uh, before we knew it, they took the movie away from us and we didn't know what the hell was going on. So they took the movie away, uh, because now we found out that the film was being made specifically for this one company to keep the rights to the franchise, to keep the rights to the Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. Uh, they had to get the movie made before before that their contract expired so uh, therefore they went to the king of the b movies they knew it could get it done down and dirty and get it done quickly uh and that's what happened so we made a movie thinking we're making a real movie and then all of a sudden we don't have a movie But the fans uh, not only were we disappointed but the fans of the fantastic four the marvel fans were extremely upset by the whole story and the film got bootlegged. uh, Luckily, somebody at a dubbing house knocked off a a copy of a copy of a copy. And unfortunately, that's the only thing that the fans have been able to see. They never allowed us to do a really good transfer of the film uh, via telecine back then to, to get a really pristine copy of the movie out there. But even in light of that, the fans still think that my movie, that film that we made is is better than all the 50 million dollar movies they and they and so to jump ahead to what's going on right now i've been invited to go to the los angeles comic con uh this week i'm leaving uh, day after tomorrow they are screening a documentary film that was made about what happened to us called doomed that and named after dr doom doomed the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four.
3: Now, mm-hmm.
1: as I understand it, the film is now out on YouTube, the documentary, um, as well as my my movie, um, and they're screening the documentary at Comic Con, and then there's going to be a Q and A following the screening of the documentary, and all this is happening on uh, on Saturday. So it's kind of interesting that after all of these years. Um, that the movie has not died. If it so it, it, talk it, about it it has and some it, kind
0: it, of voodoo karma. Um,
1: just some sort of inner spirit that. well, it's like a cult. Yeah, it's like a cult film. I love it. And uh, and I think this is it's what's happened is just the opposite of what I think they intended when they took the film away that nobody would see it, no, and everybody would forget about it. And and embrace the big new Fantastic Four movies, but the opposite has happened. They took the movie away. They should have just released the damn thing, and everybody would have seen it and forgotten about it. But they Mm -hmm. they turned it into this thing that everybody wanted to see and couldn't get. And this is it was like a clandestine thing. It was something secret, and you know, like the like the Ark of the Covenant or something that people just (laughs) had to get it. They had to and and, and, a, and they and so in effect they popularized the film by taking it away. and here it is 25 years later still people talk about the film and want to see the film and and compare it to the big you know we made a movie for for under two million dollars or less and they people tell me you know and tell you go look at the quotes on on online about my movie compared to the big ones. Oh, I love it they just that a story. better film. And you know That's what it is? Story. Because yeah. we made the film based on the characters, not on the special effects. And the one good thing that, well, many good things came out of it. We're still really good, close friends with the cast and most of, the, some of the crew, which is unheard of in Los Angeles or this business. 20 something years later, we're still very close, we're like a family. Um, but the other good thing that came out of it is that I became a very good friend of Stan Lee. And the creator of the the Marvel universe, essentially, and Stan and I used to go to a restaurant in Westwood near the office of Marvel, and he would bemoan the fact that you know he couldn't get any of his comics turned into movies, <laughs> and he would he'd sit there literally, you know, like almost like crying in his soup, you know, <laughs> and we would talk about it, and he had a a comic that was unpublished called the Femazons. And we- The Femazons? The Femazons. It was about uh, a a alternate universe where females ruled everything. And it was kind of cool. It was- That's that's the earth in about uh, another 10
0: years. I said, that's earth in another 10 years, Oli. We're taking over,
1: watch. Yeah, I wish somebody would take over that's better than what the men are doing. That's that's exactly why. that's exactly why yeah. that's gonna happen. Well,
0: now, so, um I'll tell you when I come away from our conversation, uh, yeah. thinking that you have a lot of stories um, to tell. Oh. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna have to do some more of this. We're gonna have to have you on occasionally to just tell us what, um, you know, what what's the latest saga in in the life of um, Oli Sassan. So yeah. um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna invite you back. OK, and, uh, I'm going to count on you to uh, know the moment when you've you've got a new chapter uh, to add to the story. And right. uh, and we're going to we're going to put it on the air. And I love talking to you. And um, I, I I think it was very fortuitous the day that I ran into you. I don't remember how that happened. I think it was just, you know, one of those out on the street things that happens sometimes in New York. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's always good to see you. God almighty we've known each other for what fifty years. Don't say, don't say, don't say
0: <laughs> Don't ruin I it. Had big, I had a big birthday in August and I was so, not <laughs> I was so uncertain about what to do with it, I didn't do anything. So um yeah, no, well, tell I tell me again because
1: I'm, I'm gonna be in Los Angeles making, so. I'm,
0: I'm proud of making it up here, you know, in these uh, upper numbers. But well look, I'm gonna
1: be in I'm gonna be in Los Angeles on Friday, so but Sally will be be here and i'd like to spread the word a little bit it's going to be on 12 noon on what radio station
0: 12 noon wbok as you mentioned 12 30 a.m um but also it'll be on soundcloud and i will be watching doomed also and and, and check out that whole yeah, story.
1: it's on youtube you can watch it on youtube right you and also up, the can, uh
0: the um the fantastic for itself right
1: yeah that's also you can on. Watch this, yeah but watch the documentary is on youtube right now so Check it out.
0: We'll do. You all have right, a Jane. successful trip and stay in touch. We'll do. Thank you. All right, take care.
1: All
2: right, bye bye. bye.
0: all this, that's all folks. We're gonna have them back. Bye. All right. Bye. The past year, as many of you know, dealing with uh, the outcome of a freak accident. It was a unintended acceleration of a Subaru, which is a defect. They haven't admitted it yet, but bef- by the time the class action suit against them uh, works its way through, which I have nothing to do with, um, they will admit it, I think. Um, but what happened was um, Bob Tannen, my husband. Uh, wound up with a with a car racing into a big oak tree on esplanade he got two fractured knees he wound up in a hospital then a nursing home then the hospital then he had outpatient pt came home uh, had home care Um, he had a fall he had some tests and the tests revealed something that i wish i had known when all of this began and this is the purpose of my interview um with mr stanga who is the physician assistant in Oster's orthopedics department who specializes in something called osteoporosis did i get that right yes okay so um it turns out that uh bob tannen has osteoporosis and um that is an interesting um reflection on uh, the level of threat for the result of falls. And I'm going to let Daryl Stanga uh, explain to you why it's so important for anybody, really. I I guess would 50 be a good age uh, break to start uh, testing whether you have um,
3: osteoporosis or not, or when would you say? The recommendations now are for women over the age of 50 and men over the age of 65 or 70, depending on which group you reference, to be tested probably every two years to see if they're showing signs of osteoporosis, primarily with a DEXA scan. Um, if anyone has extra risk factors for osteoporosis, um, Northern European heritage, uh, malnutrition issues, um, sedentary lifestyle, a family history of osteoporosis, then you may wanna get checked even sooner or if you've had you know, an, an unexplained fracture. So
0: the reason to get tested, and uh, and this goes for everybody, this is not something that, um, that, that's the whole point. In fact, I think you mentioned to me when we were talking about this in the office earlier today, that uh, a new protocol may be to encourage women when they get their annual mammograms that they get an annual um, test uh, of their bone density is really what you're testing um, because this is uh, apparently a fairly common um, situation, uh, especially as people get older. So, uh, tell me what this is all about. I mean, it's it's really when I tried to read the um, report from the Um, radiologists, it was all Greek to me because it's, you know, it's T this and T that. And so it it all talks about the uh, density level, but uh, tell me how this works. Tell me some of the things you were telling me today.
3: Well, what osteoporosis is, it's a loss of the the density or the strength of your bones. Um, Most folks think your bones, they're just part of your body. They're just there. Your bones are made of calcium. Every cell in your body requires calcium to function, and it gets that calcium from your bones. You eat food that has calcium in it, and your body stores it in your bones. Oh, wow. As you go through your life, the first 20 years or so of your life, you actually put calcium in the bones faster than you take it out. That's how you grow, and you get bigger, and you become an adult. When you get to your 20s or so, the process kind of evens out. So you're putting the calcium in, you're taking it out at about the same rate. When you start getting to your 40s or 50s, it starts to reverse itself. Your body is taking the calcium out of the bones faster than you can replace it. The bones begin to lose their mass and their bulk and they can become frail and break easily. And that by definition is osteoporosis. So there are different levels of density and
0: different levels, consequently, of threat, right? Yes, so yeah. oh,
3: uh, give me some clarity on that. Okay. This is a very slow, insidious process. You know, in your 40s and 50s, you may be just having a little bit of bone loss, and there are no symptoms or, or precursors to this. Um, most of the time, people find out they have osteoporosis, not unlike your husband, after they've broken a bone. And, you know, then we we usually were pretty far down the road, but this is a very slow process over years. Um, there's lots of treatments and medications and, and things that we can do to stave off osteoporosis and even reverse it to some degree. But unfortunately, it's been um, terribly underdiagnosed in years gone by.
0: Yeah, some people just don't know it until literally, as you said, they break something. That's not the best way to find out. And uh, uh, the one thing we, we've learned over these, uh, I, I don't know, it seems like about a decade at least, that so much emphasis, much more emphasis is being put on prevention, you know, not just treating something. Uh, that you have and, and, and waiting until it, it's, it's too late to even fix, but literally um, trying to get ahead of things. And so having that test, that annual test uh, is one way of making sure that you are um, getting ahead of, of the issue. Now, let's say you find out that you have not the optimum density. And again, it's a scale, right? It's not dense or not dense, it's it's uh, different levels. Give me some examples of levels that are okay and levels that are not okay.
3: Again, you're there, there's lots of numbers. We use what's called a T-score, which is it's just a calculation to compare you to your peer group and your bone density. Um, if you're losing a little bit of bone density what you get into your your 50s, 60s or so, many times just making sure you have enough calcium in your diet, doing weight bearing exercises, getting out in the sun taking some vitamin D and just, you know, being a healthy person and being active can help stave that off. If you're beginning to lose to a point that we're concerned that you may have a higher risk of a fracture, there's different medications that we can use that fall into multiple tiers from oral medications that you may take weekly or monthly to uh, medicines that you can take, uh, injections that you can take as much as daily or once every six months, depending upon the degree of osteoporosis, but it's very much treatable. Um, the sooner you can get proactive and taken care of it, the less chances there are you wind up having to be on these more aggressive medications.
0: so So that's the good news and the bad news. the The, the bad news is that um osteoporosis is common. A lot of people get it. I don't know what percentage of human beings wind up with um, some osteoporosis, but probably a pretty high percentage. Um, uh, uh, the higher levels is is a, is a different matter, but um, the key thing is that there really is now, which wasn't always true, medicine that can help um, to retrieve the d- density even at a later stage, which th- that's a very important news. I mean, I could have been a very depressed person coming out of the office today finding out about this if it weren't for the fact that the the, the, the second part of the story was there's medicine that can help you rebuild the density in your bones. And so that's, I think that's the motivating factor to encourage people to actually go get tested. Some people don't like to take tests because they don't want to know the bad news. There are people like that out there, not me um, and not my husband, but um, some people. But but this is something I hadn't thought about. He hadn't thought about. And I think a lot of people don't think about it you know, we think about certain things that you hear about a lot. You think about, you know, breast cancer, you think about prostate cancer, you think about those things, because I don't know, that's part of the day, you know, more current uh, uh, vocabulary, but but osteoporosis is not something I don't think most people think about. So I, 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 I try to make every experience, like I, I go through positive or negative, a learning experience. So dealing with, the results of this accident and and there were there was a lot of other factors going on. but um clearly uh, the fall may have uh, that he took just recently exacerbated what was already there. and and that's another thing. I think not only osteoporosis, but he may have had. From There was a uh, a moment in the nursing home when he actually had a bad move from a, a wheelchair to the bed and it hurt very much and it caused a lot of pain in an area that still continues to have pain. And so who knows, that uh, is probably a contributing factor. And he may have even had a kind of a hairline fracture that we didn't know about until we had some footage, uh, some tests done at Oshner that determined, okay, you have some fractures but to determine that what what have may have contributed to the fractures and the pain is this loss of bone density was you know quite frankly a revelation and I'm I'm very grateful to you and um the orthopedist uh doctor um how do you say his name again golski <laughs> Thank you, Zygalski. Zygalski. Um, that, that we have now gotten to kind of the bottom of um, an underlying factor that we have to address and deal with. I'm very grateful, and I think it's really important. I'm very thankful for you getting on the phone, uh, on the Zoom with me, and, and sharing this with other people. Um, let me let you put it in your words to, to the audience that's listening. Um, and uh, we'll have a little item on this at our newsletter, the Crosstown Conversations newsletter too. Um,
3: what do you recommend people do? Um, again, women, when any woman over the age of 50 should be screened you know, with a DEXA scan for signs of osteoporosis every two years. If you have a family history or other risk factors, you may want to start that earlier. In years gone by, most people believe that osteoporosis is primarily a women's problem. It's not men get osteoporosis just as much as women do, but because women go through menopause, the hormonal changes associated with that, they tend to get an earlier onset of what we could dub symptomatic um, osteoporosis, meaning they're at higher risk for fractures earlier on. They have a big loss in calcium and bone density around menopause, and that's why, it's, because of the marketing, it's people tend to think it's a women's disease. Um, but again, men get it just as much as women do, but we don't go through menopause, and it takes longer to show up. Yeah. So, but we, also, we're so a a break there,
0: and and then so the testing is one thing, definitely, but the other is you're talking about calcium intake, sun, exercise, um, vitamin D. Those are some of the other factors that can help prevent it. And then, if you find out you've got it. It's, it's then then you have to think about, okay, how do I treat it? And the good news is, as you said, that now you have a way to treat it. And that treating, how long does that take before you can kind of restore sufficient density to the bones that you're no longer in as high a threat category as you were when you started the treatment?
3: That's a little bit tougher question. That varies hugely from person to person. Um, Again, there's several different layers of medicine that we use. Um, Some of the most, you know, aggressive layers of medicine can rebuild bone and relatively quickly. Um, We can see a measurable difference, you know, within months to a year or less. Again, with osteoporosis, these things are measured with a calendar, you know, not a stopwatch. Nothing happens really, really fast. But, you know, we can build bone back and kind of get you closer towards healthier bone, within a matter of months with some of the more aggressive medicines. If we catch this early on, we can arrest the loss and and start building you back slowly over time and get you back to a safe area within a year or two.
0: I am going to take all the above as essentially uh, lessons learned, good news. And um, I hope that this will be important for many people. Who should be thinking about this? And that they will go get the go get the test. It's it's uh, painless. I mean, it's not complicated, and um and find out uh, what your bone density is like. Um, Darrell Stanger at Oster Orthopedics. I'm so deeply appreciative of you taking the time uh, to talk with us. And I'll bet you anything, we're going to save a few people from breaking a few bones.
3: Uh, that's that's my hope. Thank you. Thanks very much. so much.
0: Bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. This is Jean Nathan for Cross Sound Conversations. Tune in next week, too.